and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Jelena Sofronievich. You might have heard my name mentioned at the end of these podcasts, but this week I'm stepping in front of the microphone to unpack an issue incredibly close to my heart and conscience. It takes me about an hour to walk to our studios in North London each day, and I pass the same sights. Many things and slight changes must pass me by, and I'd never noticed one unassuming abandoned telephone box until a few weeks ago, because someone had scrawled Kosovo ya Serbia in bold black letters inside. Over 130,000 people were killed in the Yugoslav wars that raged throughout the 90s, with most deaths concentrated in Bosnia. Almost 26 years ago to the day, Slobodan Milosevic, Alija Izetbegovic and Franjo Tuđman, the respective leaders of Serbia, Bosnia-Herzegovina and Croatia, signed the Dayton Agreement in Ohio to bring about peace. We've heard comparatively little of the Balkans ever since, beyond the NATO bombings of the late 90s, but over the last few weeks, Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik has stoked fears of another violent breakup by threatening to recreate the Serbian army and secede from Bosnia. So are we on the brink of another war in the Balkans? And did it ever end in the first place? To discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by two special guests. Una Haidari is a freelance journalist focused on the Balkans and Central and Eastern Europe, and is a long-term correspondent for Reporters Without Borders. She was also a research fellow on the far right at MIT and has been supported by organisations like the International Women's Media Foundation. James Kerr-Lindsay is visiting Professor of International Relations at the University of Kent and a research associate at LSE. He has advised a number of governments and international organisations on conflict resolution in the Balkans, including the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and the UN. Welcome both to The Bunker. How are you and where are you? Hey, thank you for having me. Hello there. Yes, I'm uh, speaking to you from London. And I'm coming in from Belgrade. So when we hear names like Yugoslavia, Serbia and Bosnia, many listeners' first thoughts will be on the civil wars of the 90s. James, can you give us a summary as best as possible of the background to these complicated conflicts? Oh, I'll try my best. I mean, obviously, I mean, as with any conflict, you're going to get all sorts of competing views on the history, when it started, how it started, who was responsible for it. And so anything I'm going to tell you, you're going to be getting listeners saying, but that's not right. I think the easiest point to say is that, look, you know, after the end of the Second World War, um, the kingdom of Yugoslavia ceased to exist. And it became uh, what eventually became the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And this was essentially made up of six key republics. So you had Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Serbia, Montenegro and Macedonia. The strong man behind all of this was Josip Broz Tito. At the start of the 1980s, Tito died and there was a real sense that the country was going to be heading towards certainly difficulties, but already the sort of feeling was that it was going to to start imploding. And in fact, it took about a decade before that happened. And the first to go were Slovenia and Croatia, which declared independence in June 1991. And then you followed with a declaration of independence from Bosnia in early 1992. Serbia, I should hasten to add, was the key republic in many ways. It was the largest. The capital of Serbia, Belgrade, was also the capital of the federation. And Serbia was very, very reluctant to allow the other republics to go, especially those which had Serbian populations. So effectively, we were talking mainly Croatia and Bosnia and Herzegovina. Effectively, there was a short war with Slovenia, and then Slovenia and then Croatia went their own way. 
although there was a separatist movement in Croatia, the key focus then became on Bosnia and Herzegovina. The Serbian population was determined that they were going to break away from Bosnia and wanted to unite with Serbia. And that essentially was when we saw the start of what became the most brutal and bloody of, of all the wars of the dissolution of Yugoslavia, and that was the war in, in, in Bosnia. It got very, very complicated because also the Croats in Bosnia sought to break away. They eventually reached an agreement with the Bosnian Muslims, who are now called Bosniaks, in 1994. And then in 1995, uh, we had a series of events, including the genocide in Srebrenica, which really galvanized international opinion that something needed to be done to bring this brutal war in Bosnia to an end. In late 1995, the leaders of Croatia, Serbia and Bosnia and Herzegovina met Dayton, Ohio, and reached an agreement that essentially meant that Bosnia would remain intact as a single sovereign state, but in had a very strange, unusual format in that the Serbian area became a united entity within that single Bosnian state. And meanwhile, the Croats and the Bosniaks had a, a federation of their own within the state. It sounds incredibly complicated. It is incredibly complicated. But that sort of really... It, I guess, in a nutshell, explains the situation that we saw and where Bosnia falls into the bigger story of the collapse of Yugoslavia in the 1990s. With signatures and staged photographs at Dayton, the matter of conflict in Bosnia was considered closed. But how successful was the plan itself? Do you think it was flawed by design? Essentially, what was put in place was a very complex um, power sharing structure. So as I said, you essentially had two entities, one which was a joint Bosniak-Croat entity called the Federation, which has a number of cantons within it. And then on the other hand, you had the Serbian entity, which is Republika Srpska, which is highly autonomous. At the same time, at central government level, you had the creation of a tripartite presidency. So each of the three main ethno-religious communities, the Bosniaks, the Croats and the Serbs, were represented on this tripartite presidency. And on top of that, you then had the imposition, if you like, or the creation of an international high representative who was effectively put in place to monitor uh, this settlement process and make sure that, you know, if the sides couldn't agree to anything, he, and it has always been a he, would then step in to take action where the sides couldn't agree, where it was felt necessary that some agreement was needed. And in case that certain officials became unruly, had the power to sack them. So this became a very, very important oversight for this peace agreement. And in actual fact, in the first decade after the Dayton peace agreement, uh, the general signs in Bosnia were, were largely positive. A lot of money and attention was put into Bosnia to try and rebuild it. There were, there were actually some very positive moves towards a degree of integration. So, for example, the biggest move and, and considered perhaps the greatest success was the decision to integrate the army of Republika Srpska into the Bosnian state army. And that was seen as, a, you know, for, for very obvious reasons in a post-conflict society, it was seen as an incredibly important step. But what we've seen over the past 15 years is a stagnation in that. There's all sorts of reasons for it, but essentially it comes down to a lack of political will on the ground and an increasing sense of nationalism across all three of the, the main peoples complicated by the fact that the European Court of Human Rights handed down a ruling saying that elements, key elements 
of the Bosnian constitution were contrary to the European Convention on Human Rights and would need to be changed. Now, the reason that's so important is that Bosnia wants to join the European Union. And adherence to the rulings of the European Court of Human Rights is a fundamental prerequisite of joining the European Union. It's part of the overall political requirement for joining. So this became important. But then the three people said, well, look, if we're going to change the constitution, if we're going to give in on certain things, we want to get back on others. And they haven't been able to agree on that. So Bosnia has gradually descended into a more and more difficult position, made worse by the fact that, as you noted in the introduction, Milorad Dodik, the leader of the Bosnian Serbs, has become increasingly outspoken of saying, look, I don't think this is working, and talking quite openly about the possibility of secession. And you can imagine what the response is, certainly amongst Bosnian Muslims, amongst the Bosniaks, who really feel that he's trying to pursue the agenda of the 1990s to break away. Dayton was very much the West's peace plan for the Balkans. Una, you're dialing in from Belgrade. Did ethnic and nationalist tensions ever subside? I'm so glad James got to do, I just like to say, I'm so glad he got to do the disintegration <laughs> of Yugoslavia part of this discussion. Um, I'm always happy to avoid that part because it's very complex and intense. And I, he'll be the one getting most of the hate mail, I presume, after this conversation for getting something wrong. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> no, but, but on more serious note, I think ethnic politics obviously is something that has been present in all these countries ever since the uh, respective conflicts and, you know, that led to the, or the, the follow the disintegration of Yugoslavia. Bosnia, though, on the other hand, is probably the worst case because one of the ways in which, let's say, all the belligerent sides in the conflict acquiesced or, or agreed to the Dayton Agreement was by because such a heavily ethnicized system was created where basically ensuring that the three constituent ethnic groups in the country, so the Croats, the Bosniaks, and the Serbs, were represented at every single level of power and that there were many checks and balances that were in place. This has turned sort of Bosnia into like a Mobius strip of ethnic politics. So uh, both the things that are made, that are in its constitution, that are meant to protect it, are the same ones that are going to cause its downfall and or causing the problems now. While we talk about Dodik and everything that's going on, Dodik has been a politician who's always been extremely nationalist and sort of won elections and um, governed um, based on that. As many times as he says that he's going to secede, there are so many protections in place that that, it, that would be very, you know, it would be very difficult for that to actually happen. On the other hand, if that does happen, then there will be a conflict. So it's like this catch-22 anytime Bosnia is involved. In, and it obviously makes the other two constituent nations, but especially the Bosniaks, very uncomfortable. And people are, I, I, I can see it um, definitely on the ground, people are in Bosnia are, are scared and um, you know, the Bosniaks themselves are slipping into a form of protective sort of behavior. They're like, we're not going to let the same thing happen to us that happened in the 90s, the last time the Bosnian Serb army was formed. Many listeners might not be aware that Europe still maintains its military mission in Bosnia under Operation Althea. But the EU force in Bosnia took over from NATO's peacekeeping mission in 2004, and it maintains around 600 troops. Now, Germany's Christian Schmidt has just succeeded the Austrian Valentin Inskod to the position of high representative after 12 years in office. How are these external peacekeeping figures perceived in Bosnia by different groups? Christian Schmidt, uh, while initially people in Bosnia were skeptical of how effective he would be as an OHR, 
let's remember that the position of the high representative or the office of the high representative has so many powers and so, is so powerful in the country that they can effectively remove an official if they violate the Constitution or the Dayton Peace Agreement. And people are always really wary of anyone new who's coming in. Uh, Valentin Insko was really popular because he passed, and this is obviously very important, I think either of us have mentioned it so far, but he passed into law, which, which is one of the powers that the OHR has. He made it illegal for the genocide in Srebrenica to be uh, denied publicly by any Bosnian official. And this is thought to be the reason why Dodik, this Bosnian Serb leader, has become much more energized in his attempts um, at uh, so-called secession. Christian Schmidt is uh, has sort of taken on a very combative stance lately and has really shown that he is committed to sort of um, both protecting the, the Dayton peace agreement and the unity of the country. So I think he's grown quite popular right now. Whereas with the EU force there, there are voices on the ground that insist that it should be expanded, especially to serve as a deterrent force in uh, moments like these. I think generally people really, really rely on them, especially, like I said, the Bosniaks. On the other hand, they can others who have a more cynical approach on any of the three sides believe that this is an, an overreach because there isn't any a single country in Europe that has effectively this sort of sort of like all powerful governor like the OHR. Let's dive a little deeper into Dodik and his character then. James, can you tell me who exactly is he? What is he proposing and how serious are his proposals for secession? So Milorad Dodik is currently the Bosnian Serb member of the tripartite presidency. Bosnia has an unusual political system in that its head of state is three persons, one from each of these three ethno-religious groups. And But prior to that, he'd been the leader in Republika Srpska, so the Bosnian Serb entity. Now, what we've seen is that although we're now hearing about his, his threats of secession, this isn't new. But what's really changed it this time is that he's now started to talk very openly about taking steps that would repatriate powers that currently reside in the, in the central government and passing them either to Republika Srpska or back to Republika Srpska. So this came down to a decision by the outgoing, the previous high representative, Valentin Insko, to pass legislation outlawing the denial of the genocide in Srebrenica. And Dodik was infuriated by this. He saw this as an overtly pro-Bosniak move that was taken in the final days, if you like, of Insko's period of office, and that this was deliberately done as an attack on the Bosnian Serbs. And so he's now said, right, OK, I'm now going to repatriate these powers to, to Republika Srpska. So this could be elements of tax raising powers, elements of judiciary. Most importantly, and most controversially, he said... I am also going to recreate the Bosnian Serb army. What this does is this ratchets up the tensions. But what's quite interesting is that I think Dodik is clever enough to know that an overt declaration of independence would fail. It would fail on all sorts of levels. Apart from anything else, it's explicitly prohibited under the Dayton Peace Agreement. It's been prohibited by the Security Council. This has been confirmed by the International Court of Justice he would find himself internationally isolated. He would rely on Serbia, but I don't think Serbia, and we can talk about this in a minute, would want to get too engaged uh, in supporting him if he went down that route. His closest ally would be Russia, but Russia isn't going to be in a position to fly in aid on the occasion of him declaring independence unilaterally. So it seems that what he's done instead is reformulate the strategy and just essentially make Bosnia as utterly dysfunctional as he possibly can. 
To what end, it isn't clear. Does he believe that the Bosniaks will then eventually throw in the towel and say, all right, you know what, have your territory, have your independence, hope you choke on it. But that's not going to happen. So what we're starting to see is that maybe he's trying to do this in order to put on leverage on the international community. Say, look, you invested time, effort, money in Bosnia. It's not working. I'm unhappy. What are you going to give me? In the hope that he gets more and more powers. And then there's the feeling, well, if this blackmail wins, will he then continue and push for more? And I think that this is the real concern. Meanwhile, of course, in the Bosniak community, there's deep, deep unhappiness about what this is, uh, you know, what's happening. And this is stirring up, and especially the talk of recreating a Bosnian Serb army. People are starting to say, well, look, we might have to take up arms. And in many ways, some suspect that this might also be Dodik saying that, in fact, hoping that the Bosniaks will fire the first shot. And then he can claim, well, look, I'm doing this in self-defense. So it's really not clear what he wants. But what we can say for certainty is that what he is doing is making what is a, a bad and difficult situation all the worse. We'll come back to talk more about the kind of geopolitical aspects of this shortly. But Una, I want to ask, how do Serbians and Bosnian Serbians living in the region today feel about Dodik's plans? Does he have popular support? I'd say that those who lean nationalist or ultra-nationalist definitely uh, idealise Dodik. He is currently the most outspoken nationalist Serbian leader or leader of of, of Serb uh, descent and or someone who pur- purports to <laughs> represent Serb interests. So Dodik is seen as, for many who believe that the West is inherently prejudiced against Serbs, that the West um, will never, will always stand up for any other ethnic group in the region. They see Dodik as the guy who's making their lives difficult. So in that sense, those people will look up to him. On the other hand, it would be completely wrong to assume that someone like Dodik represents the entire Serb voting body, body, even in Bosnia, let alone in the rest of the region. He is like an idol for the for the nationalists and the ultranationalists. But but yeah, there's much more nuance when we think about so like for nationalists and ultranationalists in Serbia and Montenegro, Kosovo, obviously the diaspora. But I'd say that there's also a significant number of people who are definitely against Dodik and what he's doing especially what used to be his key sort of talking point, denying uh, the genocide in Srebrenica. You know, that used to be something that he was the most vocal about um, until this law was passed. And reading the Serbian media on this, I noticed that President Bakir Izetbegovic, who's leader of the Bosniak SDA, or Party for Democratic Action, responded to the prospect of conflict in an official media statement, saying, if people want to live, they must be ready to die. Do you think that we're using divisive designations like Serb or Bosniak anachronistically with respect to the conflict at the moment? Yeah, I definitely. Yeah, I think that there there's so much nuance even in, you know, what's going going on right now. And the worst thing is that I think people like Bakir Uzebegovic were initially not even, you know, they weren't buying into the hype. If this is one of the statements that he's made recently, that means that he's crumbled under, under like, public pressure to react to what Dodik's been doing. Because I believe that, that so many regional leaders don't want a war and also don't want their politics to be limited to and confined to, to, like, ethnic norms. But again, to go back to the very beginning of our conversation, this is Bosnia's curse, basically. When you're president, when you're parliamentarians, when, you know, the upper and the lower house of government, when in the uh, two entity parliaments, all these different levels of government all have an ethnic quota, then, you know, it's really hard to even be elected outside of that 
or almost impossible in some offices, such as the president in Bosnia, and so it makes it difficult to lead any other any politics that strays from that path. Now, someone who definitely does have Dodik's back is Putin. And Russia opposes the very idea of an international high representative to Bosnia in the first place. James, can you tell me, what is Russia's relationship with Serbia? And what do we misunderstand about this supposed brotherhood of strong men in the face of Western meddling? This is such an interesting question, and it's far more complex relationship than people often imagine. So you'll hear a very simplistic narrative that would say Russia is supporting Serbs and that Serbia is is aligning itself with Russia. And in actual fact, it's very, very much more complicated than that. And I think in many ways, what we're seeing, I think we can say with certainty that, that Russia is playing a spoiling tactic in the Western Balkans. And it's done it not just on this issue, it's doing it on Kosovo as well. It tried it with the name agreement between um, what is now North Macedonia and Greece. And essentially, Russia is very nervous about the possibility of NATO expansion. Effectively, it is supporting Serbia, but Serbia knows, well, certainly many in the government in Serbia know that. Serbia is actually having to pay an incredibly high price for that. And essentially, Serbia's already had to buy two vetoes from Russia. The first was over uh, Kosovo's declaration of independence in 2008. So Russia is preventing Kosovo from being able to join the United Nations, because of course, to join the UN, you have to get a recommendation from the Security Council. And Russia as a permanent member has veto rights. So that's one. But there was also a few years ago an attempt to pass a, a resolution on genocide, which would have explicitly talked about the genocide in Srebrenica. And Serbia was deeply unhappy about this resolution and had to go to Moscow and say, you know, will you do something about it? So um, if you like, in some ways, Serbia is rather in Russia's pocket. But I think on balance that the government in Belgrade is deeply, deeply worried about um, what is happening in Bosnia at the moment. A lot of people would say, oh, but Serbia is really behind it. I don't think that that's the case. You'll hear all sorts of concerns about Alexander Vucic, the Serbian president. But ultimately, he knows that the economic prosperity of Serbia is linked to Europe, not Russia. I mean, I've had senior Serbian officials say to me, look, we know that Russia doesn't contribute to our economy in any meaningful way. It'll take, it's got a big share of the, you know, the Serbian energy sector, for example. But it's not actually providing value added in terms of investment, in terms of jobs. That's where Europe lies. And I think Vucic's natural inclination, certainly from an economic point of view, is to push towards uh, the European Union. And he is very, I think, very concerned about what's happening in Bosnia. And again, I've, I've heard this from a number of officials, that any moves that Serbia has made towards Europe will be jeopardized if there is another conflict in Bosnia. But of course, Russia isn't encumbered with such concerns. It's quite happy to see tensions rise in Bosnia. But I do get the sense as well that Putin will know that the worst thing that could happen is for this to descend into conflict. Because as I'd already mentioned, Russia is a long way away. It cannot get to Bosnia without flying over NATO territory. And that's not going to happen. So what I think that we're seeing is that Russia is quite happy to see these political tensions, but I think is going to be very nervous about it overspilling. So it's a more complex picture I think, than, than many people naturally realise. And it doesn't quite boil down to Serbia supports Russia and Russia supports Serbia. 
Baroness Arminka Herlich, who is a member of the International Relations Committee in the House of Lords and herself a former Bosnian refugee, has argued against the redrawing of borders in the Western Balkans. She has also said that the US, the UK and the EU have to stand firm against secession, perhaps to the point of armed intervention. Do you think we're about to witness the outbreak of conflict in the Balkans again? And if so, do you think that British or coalition troops could be drawn into another war? Well, obviously, I think there should be more attention paid to what's going on in Bosnia. I think the whole point of Dayton and everything that, that was instituted in Bosnia since 1995, literally the only point of every single foreign organization was to prevent a future war. The big difference between 1991-1992 and you know 2021 is... Dodik, or the Bosnian Serb leader, does not have the Yugoslav army at his disposal. And on the other hand, while he obviously has been getting so much support from all these other autocrats, like Yanis Jansha and uh, Viktor Orban, who visited um, Bosnia recently or had him visit them, I don't think any of them is, are in, like any, a single one of them are interested in sort of putting their money where their mouth is or sending troops into Bosnia. That would lead to an actual conflict. However, that being said, I think that the biggest risk right now is that, you know, this rhetoric is going to keep escalating, you know, this this sort of, they're going to keep moving inch by inch until they get to a point where it's going to frustrate locals so much that it might lead to in- individual incidents. So people on either side might sort of just say, you know, we're done with either due to like, obviously the, the tensions are being incited by Dodik and the reactions to what Dodik is saying. And the individual incidents could erupt in places like Sarajevo or Banja Luka or other places that are more mixed in the country and where um, innocent civilians could become targets of, let's say, lone gunmen or groups of people who come, you know, get weapons and stuff like that. That has happened also in the Balkan conflicts. So people who were incited by this rhetoric sort of taking matters into their own hands. But an actual full-scale conflict like the one we saw in the 90s is almost entirely impossible. I absolutely agree. I I think, you know, the, the idea of a planned war And as I say, Serbia would not want to be drawn into this. It would be hugely damaging on all sorts of fronts to do this. But there's the accidental element, which I think is the real worry. It's the local hotheads. It's the misperception. I think this is the thing that really is is, is making a lot of people feel very nervous. After years and years of these tensions ratcheted up, that there are people who are saying, look, we, how much more of this can we take? How much more should we put up with these Serbs that are talking about secession? I think it's also important to remember that this problem goes both ways as well. That if you're a Bosnian Serb, you're hearing a lot of Bosniaks contesting the very existence of Republika Srpska and talking about getting rid of it and saying, look, this is the product of genocide. It's it's an abomination. We need to get rid of it. And the fact is, we're also waiting on census results from Bosnia. And this will be a very important moment because it will give us a much clearer picture of what the distribution of the ethnic communities is. It's already quite clear that the Bosniaks, once a plurality, will be a majority. And that is also shaping a lot of their thinking. And I think so what we're also seeing is a certain siege mentality developing amongst Bosnian Serbs who are starting to say, well, look, you know, this is all part and parcel of them creating for themselves a Bosniak state in which we are effectively marginalized, become a, a sidelined community, and we lose our Republika Srpska. So this is I think, to my mind, the real the real problem that we're seeing here. Both are seeing each other as a fundamental threat uh, to the very existence. So the Bosnian Serbs see 
Bosniaks as contesting Republika Srpska. Meanwhile, the Bosniaks, who I think by and large tend to see the state as very much their own fiefdom, see the Bosnian Serbs as a fundamental threat to that state. Perfect. Thank you, James and Una. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on The Bunker. Thanks so much for having me. Listeners, remember, there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And if you like this one, why not share it with three friends using the hashtag BunkerUp? You can also back The Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. On passing the graffitied phone box again this morning, I noticed a new addition. The word Serbia had been struck through and replaced with Albania instead. It's a haunting reminder of how close the Balkans can remain to conflict and how close to home conflict can come. This is Jelena Sofronievic signing out of the bunker. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jelena Sofronievic. Music by Kenny Dickinson. Audio production by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>